You are listening to a Sunday morning message from River Corner Church. River Corner Church is a growing church community of everyday people who gather to worship God, follow Jesus, and journey through life together. You are invited to gather with us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. If you have any questions about something you heard in this message, or if you want to learn more about our growing church community, visit us online at rivercornerchurch.com. For the past few weeks, we've been in a series looking at 1 Thessalonians. We are almost to the end of it. We have just two more weeks of it. And uh, as we kind of begin to wrap up this letter, we get to some of Paul's biggest points, some of the reasons that he wrote this letter. And last time that we opened this passage together two weeks ago, we looked at how he called them to uh, both be strengthened by love, but also overflowing with love for each other and for others, for those in the church and those outside of the church, that he calls them to be defined by love. This morning, we are going to see what I think is one of Paul's biggest hopes and uh, really missions or values for the church community in Thessalonica. As you recall, this church is in a city along a uh, very well-known road called the Via Ignatia. It's a place of trade and business. Life is abundant. There is, there is richness in the area, but there's also persecution. Both the Jewish synagogue as well as the worldly uh, the, the empire is oppressing the church. They find the church troublesome, and they begin to really oppress and even bring about some persecution. Paul's worried about their faith. He's realizing that such disorienting seasons can really divide them, can also snuff out their faith. And so first he sends Timothy to check on them. Timothy reports back they're doing okay despite the persecution. But Paul's still concerned. So he writes first and second Thessalonians, these letters uh, looking to encourage, to empower, and equip the church to live out their mission. And this morning, uh, Paul calls them specifically to a mission. One of my favorite passages, and it's a specific Mission. I'm going to even call them perhaps marching orders. Growing up or coming to faith in the vineyard movement, uh, we had these things called Wimberisms. And uh, the founder of the vineyard, Kenny Olickson and John Wimber, the founders, uh, were known for their statements. And John Wimber especially. And so we would have these these one-line things that we'd repeat to each other to remind each other of the things that we held dear to us. And one of those statements is this. In seasons in which you're looking to discern how to live, especially in those seasons where life is disorienting, where life is troubling, uh, we would say old marching orders are still good marching orders until there's new marching orders. Old marching orders are still good marching orders until there are new marching orders. And the idea was, often in life, when we begin to get uh, oppressed by our circumstances or by stuff that's happening around us, or even by the abundance of culture, and we want to enter the rat race and do better for ourselves, the reality is that in those seasons, we become unglued from any foundations that we have, and we begin to pursue 
an upgrade in life, or we begin to pursue contentment or comfort, and we will begin to look at what we can do on our own power and our own strength to make things happen. And we begin to look for new jobs. We begin to look for new places to live out of our discomfort. And the Wimberism that I shared with you was a reminder that unless you clearly hear from God, your call is just to keep a faithful, quiet presence doing what you're doing as you've been doing it. This is why Paul in another letter writes, uh, you should remain in the state that you were when you got called to Christ. There's this faithful, quiet presence in which the kingdom of God utilizes. In fact, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, we don't see the ministry of Jesus as overly flat. Well, if you listen, you'll get the rest of it, right? And so uh, uh, the, the reality is that we, we see Jesus, though he does have the crowds, often spends his time in small, simple places with a small, simple, faithful presence. He spends it in homes. He spends it with 12, sometimes with just three. And that faithful presence is what permeates the world and ends up changing life as we know it. It really becomes the greatest story ever told, a simple, faithful, quiet presence. So this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to uh, turn with me as we look at this passage as Paul gives them kind of his major word for the season that they're in. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified or transformed. That you should avoid sexual morality, that each of you should learn to control their own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in a passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And the word for lust there is not just of sexually immoral, but just lusting after affirmation, your various appetites, the need for, for uh, achievement. And in no matter one should bring Uh, should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one and each other, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. He's acknowledging that he's seen a testimony of the way they've loved each other despite their persecution and problems. In fact, he says, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And here's Paul's point. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you. So that your daily life may win the respect of others, uh, outsiders, and that so you will not be dependent on anyone. This passage, especially the bottom part of it, is Paul's point in writing 
It's a reminder of a way of life, a marching order, a mission that he's called to them. And so this morning, we're, we're really going to focus on this part where it says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll be dependent on anyone. In fact, I really just want to focus on this part this morning. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. A few months ago, Katie and I had a chance to take a day off together, and the kids were at school, and we ended up going up to Harrisburg to a great bookstore that's up there called the Midtown Scholar. If you've ever been, it's, it's just a huge bookstore. And I picked up a small read by a Russian author by the name of Leo Tolstoy, and uh, this book is called How Much Land Does a Man Need? I loved the, the read. It, it, I finished it that day as we sat on City Island watching the river, but the story is of two sisters, one who lives in a city, and one who lives in a country, and they decide to get together for a reunion. And as sisters do, they get together, they begin to talk about their life, they begin to compare their life, and they begin to get into somewhat of a spat or disagreement about who has the better life. Is it the sister in a city where all things are really close to her, or is it the the sister in a city who lives quietly? And the the book reads much like a parable, but as these sisters debate, they begin to compare whose life is better and why. Well, the husband of the country sister is listening in, and after these sisters kind of settle their debate down, they go back to having tea and being best friends again, but he is still enthralled by their conversation. He hears his wife say about how good country living is, and he's convinced that she's right, But he thinks, I would even be more right and more content and even more happier if I had more land. And then then I'd be self-sufficient. And then I wouldn't need anyone or anything. And then I'd be really happy. Well, in this parable-like story, uh, Satan is sitting under the stove, uh, the furnace, and he hears the husband talking out loud about this to himself. And he says, more land. More land I will give you, and it will be more land that I take you with. And the story follows this guy, follows this guy as he begins his journey to inquire more and more and more. And suddenly, the guy who had a content life living on a little bit of land, having time with his family, no longer had time. He was busy. He was busy acquiring, accomplishing, achieving. And he began to get more land, and he had to oppress other people to do it. And then when that land wasn't enough, he began to look at other land outside of the city, and he moved his whole family there. And when that wasn't enough, he went after more land, and he entered a deal where eventually a guy said, I will give you as much land as you can run in a day. You have to make it back to this one spot where I will sit for you. And in his greed, he runs so far. He takes so much land that coming back, he exhausts himself and dies. The only land he acquires is enough to bury his body in. Greed will take the best of us when we stay busy. And greed doesn't always mean more land or more money. It's anything that we keep ourselves busy with. The achievements, the acquirements that we look to have in life. 
This passage, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, has become my key verse over the past few years. And if you don't have a key verse in life, I encourage you. I think it's important to have a verse that you use as a mission statement in life. And this one has become mine for the past few years because I like to be busy. I don't like to live a quiet life. I'm learning to. I'm inquiring of the Lord how to do it. In fact, this has become such a focus for me that recently I've signed a contract with a blog company called Pathos, and I actually write and unpack this passage. That's all I write about is what it means to live a simple life and what Paul is getting at. Additionally, as I enter my doctorate studies, I've already told them I want this verse and what it means to have a faithful, quiet presence that permeates all we do uh, to be at the center of my studies. And, And this passage, I think, shows up throughout the scriptures in many ways, as we'll see this morning. It really is marching orders for the times that we don't know what to do, for the seasons in which life feels like it's ungluing us, and in seasons where we just don't hear God's voice. This is the marching orders that are still good marching orders until the Lord tells you otherwise. And in this era, I don't think there's a more fitting verse. The call to live a quiet life feels appealing, but also impossible for many of us. Especially when we consider the demanding, loud hustle and bustle of our highly anxious and fast-paced society. (coughs) However, we'd study and had the time to study the social economic time in which Paul writes this. Life was just as challenging when Paul wrote, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. We are not worse off. Into a culture of abundance, Paul's challenging the persecuted church to ambitiously and intentionally find itself rooted in contentment through a way of living that is prophetic or counterculture, a way of living that is quiet when the rest of the world is noisy. There's so much in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 that is worthy of further exploration. In this passage, I think Paul uses words deliberately and calculated. Ambition, lead, quiet. And as I've been reflecting on Paul's idea of quiet and what he means, what he summons us to, and the Thessalonian church to live, uh, I enjoy breaking down each one of those words. This morning we're going to break down, though, just the word quiet. The King James Version, if you're reading out of that, says that not that we are to uh, make it our ambition, but we are to study to be quiet. Both words capture Paul's intent in a good way. It's a way of living that is actionable. It is studying. It is ambitiously. These are actionable words, a way of living that we're to approach, and they were to approach ambitiously and intentionally as individuals and as a church community. A way of quiet living that becomes an expression of faithfulness that is witnessed by the people that you interact with where you live, work, and play. What a witness it would be if people saw saw us in the places that we live, work, and play as calm, as content, as peaceful and quiet. And in their frantic and busyness, that speaks great hope. In challenging them to live these sort of lives, Paul's calling them to a prophetic example that is exemplified by being ambitiously and intentionally 
still. In fact, the word for quiet there implies stillness. If you would see the word in the Greek and you would translate it to its most common English language, the word is stillness. It implies, as the Strong's Concordance says, rest from work or cease from altercation. It means that I am silent and I am living quietly. There are four other times in the New Testament that this word shows up. There are four appearances of quiet or stillness. First, the word appears in Luke 14, and the Pharisees there are ignoring a question from Jesus. He challenges them. They ignore him, and it says that they keep their peace, or some versions say they stayed still. There's the the quiet living. They're still with their tongues. In Luke 23, after the women have prepared their spices and ointments for Jesus' burial, it says that they rested the Sabbath, or they stayed still on the Sabbath. Later on in Acts 11, when Peter reports to the church in Jerusalem, he says, when they heard these things, they held their peace. The word there isn't ironi or shalom. The word there is they were still content. We also find this word in Acts 21 when Paul's at the house of Philip the evangelist, where the Spirit of God showed up in power and prophecy, and Paul learned a fate that was about to threaten him, and the church is concerned for Paul's life. And so they begin to plead with him, don't go, don't go, it's going to be bad. This prophecy says you're going to die. And it says in that part, and when they cannot be persuaded, we ceased. The church says, when we could no longer convince Paul to go that way, we ceased. That word for ceased is the same word to live a quiet life. It's to be still. Quiet living, what Paul calls them to in a very violent time, is a way of stillness. In fact, that stillness or that quiet way of living feels very Sabbath-like. I encountered a blog post a couple weeks ago from uh, a rabbi, and I'm not going to try to pronounce his name, uh, Rabbi Adin, uh, and you can see his last name there, but his quote really resonated with me. It says, the week is characterized by busyness or activity, while the Sabbath is grounded on stillness, on the nullification of oneself in the downpour of holiness. He's writing to a Jewish audience that's saying, guys, when we cease to work, when we find peace on Saturdays, when we enter stillness, it's my hope, he says, or it's it's his belief that a Sabbath grounded on holiness, the nullification, the, the erasing of oneself leads to the downfall of holiness, contentment, peace. This is a powerful line that I think it needs unpacked, but for the sake of time, we'll keep moving on. Sabbath is grounded in stillness, away from busyness. It's a call to lead a quiet life. Paul calls us, and he calls the Thessalonian church to that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, to experience an intentional Sabbath-like rest in which we ambitiously and intentionally refrain from labor, meddling speech, and we live from a place of contentment from quiet, from rest. The persecuted church, Thessalonian, 
church, has continued to live a bold and resilient faith. Paul affirms that they have done good things. They have loved well. They have served others well. But he encourages them now to encounter a Jesus-like living in which they're not working too hard to make things happen. Too many of us are busy working for something, even the kingdom of God at times, good things, in a way that I don't think Jesus ever intended. And that's what Paul's standing against in his passage. He doesn't want them to do more. He wants them to be. As Michael Breen writ, written, has written in his book, Building a Stifling Culture, one of my favorite books of all time, he says, God designed us to be productive, but we build our identities around our activities. Right? Work is a good thing, but our identity was never to be our work. In stillness, we find our identity. Truth be told, when we are working, we are rarely ever present in the moment. But in stillness, we are forced to see the moment. We are forced to see everything that floods our minds in that stillness. We are working for a way of life or for the weekend. But God calls us, Paul calls us, for something else. Paul's idea of quiet, of stillness, Sabbath-like stillness, is to find contentment in minding your own business, working with your hands, the simple way of life. The Thessalonians were not called to rest from their pain or their problems or persecution they were facing, but they were to live into the pain, into the persecution and the problems as a state of rest because they prioritized rest. Again, the author Mike Breen writes, on the first day of existence for Adam and Eve, God rested. That was our first full day. A day of rest. And then the work began. From there we see an important principle of life. We are to work from rest, not rest from work. Stillness has long been linked to what it means to tangibly experience God. David in Psalm 46, 10 writes, Be still and know I am God. That's the Hebrew equivalent to this word, by the way. Be still and know I am God. Lead a quiet life. As Moses told his people in a season of chaos and unrest, he said, do not be afraid. Stand firm. Guess what? It's coming up. And see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. You're not doing it. The Lord's going to bring it. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Lead a quiet life. Lead a still life. Through the prophet Isaiah, God told the people in quietness, that same word, right, same idea, and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Our strength comes from leading a quiet life. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, Paul gives an invitation to stillness. Stillness is intertwined with knowing and depending on God. Morgan Freeman probably one of the greatest actors of our time, not so much for his acting career as much as his voice, right? If you want an actor to uh, narrate your life, Morgan Freeman is the guy you want to narrate your life. But he has a great quote, a quote that says, learning how to be still, to really be still and let life happen, that stillness becomes a radiance. Learning how to be still, really still. And to let life happen to you, around you, 
that stillness becomes a radiance. I believe that sort of radiance is what Paul's hoping for the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11. He's hoping that God's presence, his stillness, his peace, his restoration, his identity will work in them. It'll work through them. It'll work with them, alongside them, in the places that they're each living, that they're each working, that they're each playing. So I have a few steps that I think we can take, practical takeaways that I think we can practice to experience what it means to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life. First, common sense. We have to prioritize it. We practice, and then we become. We become what we practice. Take intentional moments each day to embrace stillness. Right? Don't jump off the diving board in the deep end. I'm an extrovert through and through. And a few years ago, I read this book called An Invitation to a Journey. And it was talking about what it means to be formed in the image of Jesus for the sake of others. It was dealing with uh, how to make sure you're holistically and not just partially following Jesus. And he suggested that you work on what he called your shadow side. So if you're an extrovert, you should learn some introvert characteristics. And he suggested that introverts go on silent retreats. Now, he did forewarn us in that book that most extroverts go crazy when they try to bite off more than they can chew. Uh, And he told the story of a guy that couldn't make it a weekend by himself. And I thought to myself, well, that can't be me. I've spent many years traveling with bands and driving by myself through the night, and uh, no way would I go crazy. And so I called a friend of mine, Curtis Kanegi. Some of you would know him. He was at New Danville for a while and moved to Maine. And he had a cabin way out in the woods in Maine that lived on solar power. It had a mild dirt road to get back to it. And I said, Curtis, I need to spend some time in the quiet. I need to prioritize it. And so I got just a place to come up and use the cabin. It'll be great for you. Day two of no cell phone coverage no talking to anyone. I couldn't call home, right? It snowed like 11 inches overnight because it's Maine and it was Thanksgiving time, right? It was brutal. I was talking to myself. Uh, The place was beautiful. It was a white pine cabin. It overlooked a bog. I mean, there were black bears everywhere. Uh, But I definitely bit off more than I could chew. So I thought to myself, well, I promised myself I wouldn't talk to anyone on this trip. So if I go into town, which was a town of about 120 people, about five miles away. I said, if I go into that town and eat at a restaurant that closes at three, uh, at least I'll see people. I just won't talk to the waitress or anything like that. Right? And I began to find ways to at least encourage myself. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't go crazy, but prioritize it. Take a few moments each day. Secondly, Find contentment in stillness. When you practice it, it's okay not to be okay at first. It's okay to be driven crazy by the quietness. But it's important for us to cultivate contentment in the quiet moments. Fields need cultivated. You don't just plant a seed and overnight something grows. There are seasons of growing. There are seasons of rest for the land. There are are practices that we have to do to till the ground. The same is true for us as we develop quiet moments. We need to begin in understanding that true peace comes from within and not external circumstances. When we are faced with challenges, we need to find ways to rest first and then 
approach the challenge. Stillness isn't an absence of the problems, but it is a powerful way to navigate through them. Third, we need to work from rest, not rest from work. Redefine the way that you rest and the why behind why you rest. Look, I'm looking forward to the weekend. I'm pretty sure I walked into Sean's office this week and said, it's Friday, I can't wait for the weekend, right? I've done that to a lot of people this week. There's a reality that you look forward to the weekend because you just get tired of the people you work with. You get tired of things that are happening in your work week. And the weekend feels like heaven. It feels like a foretaste of what's yet to come for all eternity. And then you get home and your kids are annoying. No, I'm just joking, right? And so, uh, but you look forward to the weekend. But the more I've been pushing this out, the weekend is also a time of stillness, a time of rest. I've tried to pull back on what I focus on. You know, when I first started pastoring in 2010, I probably spent 15 hours writing a sermon. I wanted them to be perfect. I wanted to know everything about that passage. Now I probably spend about four hours writing a sermon. And and the reason for that isn't that I have less time than, well, maybe some. But uh, the reality is I want to guard my time better. I want to pull back, be more effective, but less distracted. It's important for us, instead of working tirelessly for identity and achievement, to find ourselves in moments of stillness. And the weekend has become a moment where I practice being still a lot more. Katie, if you know her, could stay home every day and never see anyone be really happy. And either my pursuit of this verse or living with her now for 17 years has rubbed off of me, and more and more, that idea of stillness is appeasing to me. Four, learn to connect with God in a stillness. Don't just sit in a stillness because it's the absence of busyness, right? When we stop moving, we need to listen because at that point we can actually hear God's whispers. This throws up in the passages of the Old Testament, right? God's not in the thunder. He's not in the, the fire. He's a still, small voice. We follow biblical examples like David and Moses who found their strength and guidance, guide, guidance in moments of, of stillness. Pull back like Jesus does for the mountaintop experiences so we can learn to rest in the valleys. Find ways to incorporate spiritual disciplines, prayer, meditation, reading scriptures in your quiet times to deepen your spiritual connection. And lastly, share the practice. And what I mean by that is it gets better when we pursue stillness together. If we're not doing things together as a family, as a couple, or as friends, if we're not learning, you know, our mission statement is to journey through life together. If we aren't journeying through life together, we will burn up and burn out very well, very fast. Paul's writing to the church, not to the leaders, not to the individuals. He's writing to the church. It's the first letter of 1 Thessalonians, to the church in Thessalonica. Right? He's telling them as a community, and now he says, make it your, he's writing to them as a community. He's saying, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Carry this sense of marching order and mission together. Encourage each other, those around you, your friends, your family, your community. Invite them on the journey with you. Habits are rooted better in our lives when they are shared with others who can keep us on track and accountable. Perhaps start what's called a rule of life. 
as I shared, my diabetes has changed and I've had to develop a new rhythm of life. I averaged six hours of sleep up to about a week ago. That was my average. I enjoy working on schoolwork and reading books when the kids go to bed, having that stillness, and so I carve time out for it. Suddenly, I learned low sleep is not really good for blood sugar counts. And so I have had to redefine how I do life. And so I create a rule of life. It's something I've done for years. I've had to rewrite it recently, but I literally spell out my hour and how I'm going to spend it my my day-to-day. I will wake up at 6 a.m. I will take my shot at 7 a.m. At 7.15, I will leave for work. And then when I come home, I will go home and spend three hours with the kids. I will put them to bed. And then I will practice by reading for an hour. Then I'll do homework for an hour. Then I'll go to bed at 10 o'clock instead of midnight, right? And this way of living is something we carry together as a family. We print it out. We have it around the house. It's a rule of life. It's, it's the rhythm on Saturday mornings, devotions at this time, six hours of family time together. And it's something we carry together. It's important for us to allow stillness to be a space where we practice listening to the nudges of God's presence. Remember, living and leading a quiet life is not escaping the challenges, but navigating them with a peaceful and grounded spirit. I read a book for school last year called God in My Everything, and he suggests the rule of life. He has some other practices in which he recommends, but he quotes from a guy named Thomas Merton, an early uh, church philosopher and theologian, Uh, And Thomas Merton says that the most pervasive form of violence in the modern world is busyness. Not drugs, not guns, but busyness. And he says the Chinese character for busy combines the pictographs for heart and death, suggesting that busyness kills the heart. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, a life that is still. These are the marching orders that Paul gives to a church that is persecuted. He doesn't tell them to gain new ground by going and doing more, being more, or rather doing more or or accomplishing things. He calls them to be more, to be still. These are the old marching orders that are still good marching orders, and it's how we stop things from taking us out. I will pray. We will end with song. And as I pray, I'll also pray for our meal. Uh, Feel free to join us downstairs afterwards for our first of the month potluck meal.